0: Welcome to the first of hopefully many episodes of the Missed History Podcast. My name is Luke Mogante, and I just wanted to start off by saying thank you so much to everyone who has supported Missed History to this point. Uh, the goal from the beginning has been to provide free, educational, and entertaining historical content that presents all of world history with humans as the central unifying focus instead of strictly national, regional, religious, or other limiting perspectives. Without further ado, here is the conversation with Akinwumi Gunduran, a prominent professor, archaeologist, and author in African studies, more specifically the Yoruba people of his native Nigeria. His most recent book, The Yoruba, A New History, is one of the most comprehensive studies of the Yoruba people to date. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here, Akin. My pleasure. I have greatly enjoyed reading uh, your various books over the past few weeks. You note in a lot of them that during colonial times, history kind of got washed uh, for a lot of the West African cultures that have obviously existed and developed in the region for millennia. Yes. Um, how do you introduce the idea of the Yoruba people to someone who has never heard of the Yoruba and how much does the Yoruba identity today relate to the Yoruba identity that you discuss through the book?
1: Thank you for that question. Yeah, you are right that uh, many people, even, even in Africa, uh, do not know much about the history of their own community, not to talk about history of uh, other communities. And uh, when you move out of Africa, in fact, it is even worse. So how do I introduce Yoruba to the world? I am interested in what we call the deep history of Africa. And that means that I move away from the idea that history can only be studied with the European arrival in Africa and that history can only be studied with written documents. Many of us who study Africa, we have pushed uh, the boundaries, or we are still pushing the boundaries, to make the world realize that there are many ways, or there are many paths to understanding African history, Uh, partly because many africans in the past did not record their history in documents but they recorded their history in pictures in images in artifacts in oral traditions in festivals so i use those materials those sources to study african history in, in general and yoruba history in particular now a part of that, I mean, an important part of my research methodology, of course, is archaeology as well. I use archaeological resources. So the Yoruba are people who currently live in present day Nigeria, Benin Republic, and Togo. These countries are in West Africa. This is their original homeland. Uh, but they Evolved as a language community. Because when you are talking about of a culture, Yoruba is a culture, cultural group. When you talk about of, of, of a cultural group, the starting point is language. This is always the first thing that hankers. A community is identity. Of course, the second thing are uh, you know uh, festivals, rituals, religion. Artifacts, objects. The language is the first thing. So, the first way to understand the Yoruba is their language is to ask the question how old is this language and where did it develop? So, Yoruba ancestral language developed around the present uh, region that we call the Niger Benue confluence in Nigeria. This is where the language community developed about 3000 BC. I mean, now, language is not static. Language changes over time. The Yoruba language that we speak today, which is a dialect continuum, is not exactly the same one they were speaking 3000 BC. (laughs) So, but but it is the ancestral language which has evolved into the present. So by using historical linguistics, which is another dimension of my work, I was able to trace the Yoruba ancestry to the niger Benue Conference of Nigeria to 3000 BC when they were already practicing agriculture. And then I was able to, from that point onward, I was able to trace the history to about 300 BC which is the beginning point of my own book that you mentioned, the Yoruba a New History, and that, and then I was able to trace that history from 300 BC to uh, mid 19th century. So I will introduce the Yoruba as a a people who evolved from the later Stone Age history of Africa. A people will gradually build their civilization, their culture, their political system, their economy, their society, uh, their religion over a long period of time. So that is the way I will introduce the Yoruba people.
0: And you kind of define in the book, instead of calling the Yoruba or the Yoruba that the history is based around as an ethnicity, foremostly, Mm -hmm. or a nation, you choose the term um, community of practice. Can you kind of explain what that means and how that's different? Yes, yes.
1: One of the issues that I wrestle with in my book was to what extent should I use colonial categories to define the people who did not see themselves in the way colonial anthropology, colonial history invented Africa. See, Africa is more than a geographical expression. Africa is also an invention of the West through colonialism. And that colonialism gave us so many uh, vocabularies that are not compatible with the experiences of African peoples. So for those of us who are engaging in Africa today, we must be aware, or cautious, on to what extent we use these colonial vocabularies. For example, uh, a common reference to Africans is to say, oh, African tribes, you know, African tribes, yeah, all to say, and then later some of us, as I said, African nations. But these are not the ways that the, 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 the Yoruba of the uh, 11th century, 5th century AD, this is not the way they refer to, to themselves. And in fact, it's not the way. That people are referring to themselves on the eve of European conquest of Africa. So I do not find the idea of tribe or nation, which is the European, which is which is the European invention of itself, no, the idea of nation, which must have particular symbols to define a particular group. I do not find that, um, that those concepts relevant to understanding the Yoruba. So I therefore uh, basically borrowed the concept of community of practice. Now, borrowing that that term, community of practice, it it came out of my own research. So that when you you are doing historical research, you've discovered information that doesn't have a language. I mean, and you are trying to describe what you are saying that doesn't have a language. (laughs) So... I realized that the the ancestral Yoruba never defined themselves based on language only. They never defined themselves as isolated group of people, as a unique set of people, which is what the idea of nation is supposed to be, right? A nation is supposed to be a banded space with a language with a religion. Not to say the Yoruba did not have its own language, its own religion, but what I was trying to push is that anyone can become Yoruba in as much as you subscribe to Yoruba ways of being, Yoruba experience. So, for example, we have their neighbors such as the Edo speaking people, the Nope speaking people, who eventually became Yoruba. They adopted Yoruba political system. They they adopted Yoruba religious system. So they became Yoruba. So what the point I was trying to make is that what defines Yoruba is practice. And it's not just a a, a, a definite set of practices. These practices are always evolving. And people who subscribe to those practices in the past, they became Yoruba. And likewise, there were some Yoruba who were born as Yoruba-speaking, who eventually adopted, migrated, and became Nupi, or they became Mandé, They became something else. So, the point here is that ethnicity in Africa is very diffuse. It's very open-ended. These are open handed societies that are very cosmopolitan. The Yoruba are cosmopolitan people and therefore they do not subscribe to geographical boundaries of isolation or geographical boundaries of difference. These are people that actually celebrate differences, right? Um, because they celebrate differences, their are, they are, they are, they are doors are always open to experiment new things, to bring new people into their fold and to celebrate that diversity or what I call composite, composite nature of of, of, of culture. So that's why I I, I, I borrow the term community of practice as 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 a better way to understand the Yoruba instead of seeing them as a tribe or as a nation or as 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 an ethnic group. Because what defines Yoruba is modern language. It's also practice. It's also cosmopolitanism. It's also openness to differences.
0: So this, you focus on shifting the style of narrative itself, even away from these Western terms mm-hmm. uh, that have more often been used. To what extent does this come from your own experiences growing up in Nigeria? And how exactly did you learn about Yoruba history when you were younger?
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I grew up in Nigeria. Um, I lived the first, 20, first perhaps 27 years of my life in Nigeria. <laughs> so I grew up in a very traditional, at the same time, a cosmopolitan society. I grew up in a city. Uh, Yoruba are city builders. So... Uh, it's, my upbringing was not unique in that regard because most Yoruba people actually have lived in cities, <laughs> you know, for the past 1,000 years. So I grew up in the city of Ibadan. It is an indigenous city. It, was, it is not a city created by British uh, rule. So that because it is an indigenous city, uh, we, were, we were hampered by indigenous Yoruba practices. A society or a neighborhood whereby the, the elders were very attentive to history. And uh, I, I discovered very early in my, my life that people love to tell stories. People love to use history to address contemporary challenges, conflicts. So they use stories, they use history to resolve conflicts. They use history to to interact with one another. So this is the kind of space where I grew up. So as a kid, I was listening to what elders were saying around me. Perhaps (laughs) that's seeded in me, uh, a love for history or a love for story. But actually I was going to study literature in college. <laughs> I mean before before I said now nah, you know, I think I'm better off studying history. <laughs> so I thought so and that's why up to today I I I, I enjoy good literature and I and, and and I move back and forth between literature and history as well. So my background perhaps uh, in a kind of a subconscious way uh, influenced my approach to to history uh but my environment certainly uh shaped my formative years before i started i mean i became aware of the world through the stories that my elders were telling around me uh, they were telling histories of of collaboration they were telling history of conflict they were telling history of becoming uh, at the same time they were also uh, uh, they were not tied down by history. They were also aspiring, you know. Uh, they were teaching us to aspire beyond the limits of our environment. So all those things, so my, my my interest in Western education is something that is natural in my environment. People, you know, that's what they know the, the future is going to be. So there's no holding back. But what they were telling us, though, was that you can go out in the world and become whatever you want to become, but don't forget where you're coming from. Use your history. Use your culture. Use your tradition to engage the world. Don't lose it. Because once you lose that history, you lose that culture, you lose yourself. Because what you bring to the world that is unique is that tradition, is that your culture. And it has a lot to teach the world So, that that kind of uh, confidence in my elders, of course, I believe, uh, transferred to me as well. That confidence that, oh, this culture, this tradition has a lot to teach the world. Later in life, I began to realize it. I began to come across it in my travels, whether it's in Brazil or in uh, Cuba or in Europe. I started in in New York and began to encounter... Yoruba and everywhere I go. So, so that is the formative stage of my life and how it has shaped my my approach to history.
0: So, at the time, was the history education uh, more so? It would come from like your family and uh, you mentioned the elders. Was yes. there any kind of uh, formal education of history that you remember and? kind of what was focused on, uh, who, who was in charge of what the history would be that was getting taught. Oh, yeah.
1: Yes, I'm a post-colonial child. That means that I was born after uh, former colonialism ended in Nigeria. So I was, I was born into independent Nigeria. And before Nigeria gained its independence in 1960, Many Nigerian elites and intellectuals were already aware that they must decolonize African history. That is, they must decenter European history from our history. That that African history doesn't be, did not begin with European, with the Europeans. So I was lucky in the sense that I was born into a society where people are, I mean, Nigerians were already restructuring the the curriculum. They were already uh, moving the curriculum to become Africa-centered. For example, uh, during colonialism, when they talk about River Niger, they will say Mungo Park discovered River Niger. Now, Mungo Park was a British explorer (laughs) who was taken to Mongo to, to, to River Niger by Africans. So, my our teachers were saying, but you know, Africans were living in around River Niger for several millennia. How can we continue to say that Mongo Park <laughs> discovered River Niger? He discovered it for his people, the British. He did not discover it for us. So, I was lucky in the sense that by the time I was studying history in elementary school our teachers were already pointing out these colonial narratives in our, that, are, that still exist in some of our books, and they were already correcting it. So history was required in elementary school when I was there. Uh, it was required in high school as well. So I never had, but the kind of history that we were being taught was the history of Africa history of west africa history of nigeria they were they were trying to to foster in us a sense of history that is nationalistic that is nigeria centered that will make us have pride in nigeria as citizens of that country that will make us have confidence and pride in africa so that is the kind of history that they were teaching us but so in schools our history lessons were mainly Nigerian, Yoruba, African history. Now, I ho- I had another advantage, and that was that my father was a school teacher. He passed away earlier this year. As a school teacher, he he, he maintained a, a library at home filled with history, books, including European history. Filled with literature, you know. Um, so I was reading. I mean, I was voraciously reading Eastern of Europe at home. I was voraciously reading uh, classics. I mean, especially British classics, you know, uh, Shakespeare at home, you know. Uh, so, so all of these, uh, I believe. <laughs> Uh, shaped my upbringing or my background in the sense that I can easily but I realized that the history that I was being taught is not as rich as the history of the Greeks that I was reading you know I was I, I was learning I mean mythologies from my elders you know myth myth I, I mean I, I enjoy myth I mean I love myth <laughs> so I was learning mythologies from my elders. Uh, but the history I was learning in school about my people is very stale. You know, you know, it's not, it makes me, when I read European history, it makes me question some things that, you know, we are still being taught in school about African history. So I could already see that this is not as full, as complete as it could be. So maybe those kinds of LA observations uh, shaped the, my trajectory as a student, and today as a scholar as well, about what I tried, the gaps I tried to fill. I don't want to say that I already had in mind that I would be writing a book like this when I was in, in, the, in elementary school, no. But I was already aware that, you know, uh, the kinds of uh, stories I was reading from my father's library, they seem to be more complete, more full than the ones that were being served in school.
0: One of the difficulties for any expert, it seems, especially in history, archaeology, anthropology, you have all this research that you've been working on for years and then you have to find a way to condense it uh, into a form that is understandable and entertaining to a certain extent to the audiences that you want to reach. And I think that you do that really well with this this? uh, recent book as someone not from Africa and where most of my familiarity with African history has come from just learning on my own and maybe a couple classes in college, it can be really confusing differentiating between the different groups and the different periods, especially when the pre-colonial periods are sadly um, minimized, I think is a good word for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though there is so much nuance and breadth to the histories themselves, they often get left out or bunched into these larger periods without that context. And um, for this book, you break down the Yoruba history into seven unique periods, Mm -hmm. uh, starting with the archaic period early on, which was driven possibly more so by climate changes than Mm -hmm. Uh, social changes at first, can you explain the origins of Yoruba history and what the archaic period represents?
1: Thank you. Uh, Yes, Uh, one of the the, one question that has actually driven my own scholarship for several years before this book is how to periodize Yoruba history. I, I observed very early in my career that the periodization scheme we use to study Africa, just as you said, minimizes the, the, the depth of African history. We, we always say pre-colonial, colonial, and post-colonial. And the pre-colonial is supposed to be this vast, time frame where nothing changed. Everything just remained the same until the Europeans arrived in the scene, and then things begin to change. Of course, I mean, uh, archaeologists and other scholars who are committed to African history, they uh, they have uh, 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 demonstrated that that's not the case. But despite that, the tendency, even among scholars, is to try to pigeonhole African history within the temporal framework that has been established in other world areas, Europe or Asia. So, and even to use some of the terminologies and concepts. So what, what one thing I realized that history is local. History is regional. The Yor- I, mean, I cannot engage Yoruba history in global history if all I do is pigeonhole Yoruba experience into, the, into other people's experience of time. So for many years, I've been working on developing a new periodization scheme that is consistent with the data sets that I have. So in this uh in this in this particular book uh stretching from 3000 BC to 19th century I I define Yoruba history is I mean I, I divide it into seven periods. The first period, what I call the archaic period, uh stretches you know from 2500 3000 BC to 300 BC. This was a period when uh, proto, a language that I call Proto-Yoruboid, which is the ancestral language of present-day Yoruba dialect continuum, that is when this language developed uh, around the Niger-Bunu Conference in present-day Nigeria. The cake, sorry, uh, it's not the like archaic, it's, it's the pre-archaic period. <laughs> the pre-archaic period uh, lasted from about 3000 BC to 300 BC. And that is the time when Yoruba uh, ancestral language that we call Proto-Yoruba evolved around the niger benue Conference. And then the archaic period uh, started around 300 BC. Uh, I I chose that particular uh, time period because that was the beginning of a major climatic change in West and Central Africa. A climatic change that we call the Big Dry. You know, the Big Dry was a, was a period of intense drought. Uh, that lasted through 300 AD, so it was a 600-year uh, period of intense drought, uh, very low precipitation, and that is that marked the 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 beginning of Yoruba or Yoruboid great migrations from their ancestral home. It was also the period when yoruba languages begin to split you know into into the dialects that we call them today and even some sister languages begin to split from the yoruba line so we have the proto-igala language the proto-ishakiri language and of course proto-yoruba languages so this was a period of instability a period of um, you know, uh, uh, overlapping migrations. Uh, it was also a period that we associate with the with the early Iron Age, when the later Stone Age Yoruba people began to adopt metallurgy. So this this cake period. Uh, I, uh, we should see it as a period of instability, but also a period of innovations. What I was trying to address in this particular, uh, in, in talking about this period, is that climate change has always been a, an event of instability. But it doesn't mean that a little collapse of civilization, that civilizations can become innovative and become exp- experimental. And what could come out of that instability can be something that is even better than what transpired before it. So, I see the the Achaic period I, that was associated with the climate change. I see it as a period of instability, but that instability also created innovations. It's like the Yoruba world was jolted into a new consciousness. And from that point onward, uh, things began to move in a, in, in a direction that uh, eventually culminated in what I call the early formative period, which lasted from 250 to 750 A.D. Now, that was a period when precipitation improved. Uh, there was rapid population growth. There was uh, expansion of... Formalized political institutions are uh, headed by a, a, a professional leaders that we call priest chieftains. So this this was a period of uh, political innovations uh, in the early formative period, and then we have el- uh, late formative uh, when those foundational political Innovations were were, were were improved upon, and then you begin to see the, the the emergence of the first urban centers in the Yoruba world, and 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 the new ideology of political leadership also developed. So on and on like that. So, um, if you want me to talk more about the other periods, I will be glad to do that. But uh, but 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 those are the so the period from the archaic to late formative period, which lasted from 300 BC to uh, about 11th century, these were the foundational periods in Yoruba history that then culminated in what I call the classical period in Yoruba history. uh, When the Yoruba culture, as we know it, uh, fully matured uh, with very intense regional interactions, regional trade uh, innovations in technology such as glass making uh, when political institutions fully developed to what we see today into uh, divine kingship uh, when urbanism became the primary uh, force of Yoruba civilization uh, as, as so the Yoruba became urban people, uh, city-state people during this classical time. So this this, this, this is when the Yoruba community of practice matured and became conscious of itself as a community. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 although people were divided, I mean, were, were, were living under different political organi- I mean, authorities, they subscribed to the same political institution. They subscribed to the same... Uh, modalities of of living, uh, which means that they were, you know, they were uh, the, the ultimate aspiration was to build a city, it was to build a town, uh, it was to have economic specialization. So all of these things, uh, I call which lasted from about one thousand to about fourteen twenty AD, I call it the classical period of Yoruba civilization.
0: And these these periods happening so far in the past. You approach it from an interdisciplinary way where you take uh, written histories that have already existed. You look at archaeological evidence. You look at linguistic history, and you also look at the oral traditions and performance traditions that have passed on the history locally Mm -hmm. for thousands of years, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in the archaic and early formative, late formative periods. How do you go about collecting this historical data and how do you decide what is relevant to the overall story? Um, I want to just mention in one part, I really appreciated you talked about, uh, I think it was around 800 soapstone figurines that were found in S.E.A., Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you break down that of these few hundred figurines, Uh, Most of the women are holding machetes, which represents that at the time, the women uh, were often the farmers of the culture, whereas the men that were holding smithing items and tools or weapons often did the fighting or the metal work more so. Uh, I think a lot of people see archaeologists discover something or dig something out from under the ground and they miss all the other research and work that goes into it. Mm-hmm. um so yeah. to the first point can you explain how you decide what to include from these early periods where history is a little bit more thank legal? you and um how do you find meaning within an artifact that has been found
1: yes thank you for that question yes um there's no way I could have written this book uh by playing fidelity to only one source. I couldn't have written this book based on, I mean, at least this type of book with only archaeological materials. As I said in the book, it's true that most of my research efforts uh, over the past 25 years have been in the archaeological archaeological field because, you know, it takes time and a lot of money (laughs) to do archaeological research. It's more expensive than other kinds of historical research. Uh, but I've always uh also well while I'm doing archaeological research, I've also I've always also conduct uh research into oral traditions, which are stories that are passed down from generation to generation. Uh, I've always paid attention to to rituals and 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 festivals in fact i use the term ritual archives that history is embodied in many parts of africa embodied in the sense that it is it is embedded in practices and many of the rituals and festivals in africa they are more they are they are they are historical performances so I've always paid attention. In community where I work in Nigeria, I always pay attention to their rituals, to their festivals, because that is how they, they, they write, in quotes. That's how they write their own narratives and tell their own story. Also, I've always paid attention to language. language everyday language itself, vocabularies, trying to understand the etymology of a word, it, 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 it's an historical exercise. <laughs> so I find a lot of insights in Yoruba language itself. There, there's another dimension of language that I've always been attentive to, and that is historical linguistics, or linguistics, where I am looking at syntax, phonology, I must confess that I'm not an expert in this particular area of historical research, that is the use of uh, historical linguistics, but I've had the blessing of a mentor, uh, Professor Christopher Erich uh, at the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, who has been encouraging me for years to... Pay attention to linguistics, and that he would that he was going to work with me to analyze the data. So he gave me the he gave me uh, the the kind of information I should be looking for that I should collect in the field. That after collecting that information, he will assist me in analyzing the data. So I've benefited from my collaboration. Uh, with Christopher Eretz in that regard. So it turns out that that dimension of my research, historical linguistics, is critical to my analysis or my interpretation of the archaic period, which was the period of great Yoruba migration. So without linguistic evidence, I would not have been able to Write that information the way I've done. Uh, of course, I use language throughout the the book as as historical document uh, in writing different parts, but that is my my attentiveness to everyday language. That's you know, uh, uh, vocabularies have history. Vocabularies have many, and the many they have are historically situated. So i've done i use that throughout the book but linguistic evidence itself uh, contributes a lot to my study of the archaic and early formative period in addition to archaeological materials in addition to rituals and festivals but i anchor my my narratives of the cake period i anchor it really on linguistic evidence so no, none of these sources can be used fully to write history from the beginning from 300 bc to the 19th century because there are gaps in them so what i've done here is I use a particular source up to the point that I exhaust its meaning. I mean, I exhaust its purpose, at least for now. And then where one evidence stops is where another one begins. (laughs) So sometimes where the archaeological evidence ends is where our traditions begin. And sometimes our traditions and archaeology, they are able to overlap. So I was able to do critical analysis of the two or even three sources at the same time. So this is, to me, this is a a more fruitful way, uh, a more productive way uh, to write uh, 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 Yoruba history when you actually juxtapose multiple sources so that you can truly see the limits of a particular source. And you can see the possibilities of another source. This juxtaposition uh, really helped me a lot in to to even challenge some of my own previous conclusions, which I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that I found many of those uh, 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 in the uh, inaccurate conclusions that I made in the past in my own writings. But that is what scholarship is about. I always tell people that uh, history, or well, history especially, is not. It's not an ideological enterprise. You cannot be an ideologue. Uh, And and historical research, archaeological research, humbles you. It humbles you because you may go into the field 10 years ago and, and thought that, oh, you've discovered it all. And then you go back to do more research and realize that what you thought you discovered and that is the only information available is now being turned over by new sorts of evidence. As a scholar, we have to be open to revise what we thought we knew. (laughs) We have to be willing to revise that. And I did a lot of that in this book, that I revised some of my own previous conclusions. I revised some of the things that other scholars believed they have resolved. I was able to puncture uh, some of what we thought we knew about Yoruba history uh, again based on new evidence uh, based on new perspectives that our data uh, is able to give us so this book is I will not call it the final the final book on Yoruba history in as many of us are still doing research uh, we will continue to revise what we know, and this book, in fact, I will, I always joke that what I've seen in the last two years, I wish I've I've seen those things in my own research. Because in the last two years I've come across information that maybe in the next five years I will use to revise what I've written in this book. <laughs> so since since two years ago that I published this book, I've come across new new information. I mean that Will help me revise, not totally change the book, but it will allow me to revise some things that I I did not really get right in this book, and that is what scholarship is about. Is that, is that you know, for those of us who are field archaeologists, who are archival uh, historians, who are not ham chair historians, you will continue to come up with new information, new data that help us fine tune revise what uh we thought are settled questions in the past
0: what what would you say are the most uh, controversial or heavily debated questions right now still that you would like oh. to answer or see answered in the near future
1: oh well uh it's not so much that the uh, well, there was theres there's still i would say there are still debates about when the Yoruba left their ancestral home and they began to migrate and expand, who did they meet in these new territories they were moving into? Now, I argue in my book that they were meeting mostly later Stone Age populations. But in the last two years, I've come across Oh, I've, 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 well, I've come across new information showing that there were Iron Age people, there were early Iron Age people living in some of the territories that the Yoruba migrated into. That is one dimension. Another point that my book that may be controversial to some people but it's not controversial to me is that the geographical extent of what you call the Yoruba did not emerge overnight as a finished geography. Yoruba geography was, has always been in making. It was a gradual process that lasted for more than 1,000 years. And today, we are seeing that geography it's now been shifted again. It is the, the boundaries have shifted, actually, over the past uh, 300 years as well. So, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very attentive to usual to space in my work, partly because of my background in archaeology. The archaeology is the study of time and space. So I've always been interested in, in the, in the coalescence of space in time. And coalescence of time in space. So, that geographical dimension of history is very important to me. It's very, it's very, uh, it's very necessary in my work. So, the, the geography of Yoruba people as a community of practice is not static. It has never been stable. (laughs) It is always shifting. So, that is a dimension of my work that may not be consistent with the rigidity that colonial geography tried to impose on many African peoples, including the Yoruba. Because the idea of a nation is supposed to be a fixed boundary that then expanded and they never thought of it as contrasting. Right? It's something that is fixed, and then it, it expands through empire building. And uh, my work is showing that no boundaries shifted all the time. It is not fixed. So that is the dimension of my work. That I, I, my my current research is shedding new light on that. So that what I'm doing now will even add more information to the skeleton materials that are present for the archaic period. Uh, We are now focusing on the early iron age, going back to 400 BC uh, to about 40 BC. And we're coming up with very fascinating information there, very fascinating data that I think will allow me to fine tune, not revise in any drastic way, but fine tune and add more flesh. So the skeletal information that I provide for the cake period.
0: If you're going to conduct a dig at one of these sites, how certain are you oftentimes going in beforehand that you will find what you're looking for there? Or how do you decide to to search at one location over another?
1: <laughs> uh... Whenever I present my work uh, to people, people always say, "Ah, when are you going to be done with this?" It seems that it will never end. You always discover one thing and lead you to another thing. And I say, "Yes, that is the ampersand. That is the ampersand nature of of scholarship, especially uh, doing archaeological research." So I start. I launched a new project uh, uh, in about about. Uh, See, almost seven years ago now. Actually, in 2017, yeah, five. That's five years ago, right? Yes, five years ago, I launched a new project on uh, Oyo Empire. Uh, you know, I, I, well, it's not new. I've I've been working on Oyo Empire for many years, but I was focusing on the on the frontiers of the empire uh because my question then was to understand how the empire expanded. How how a city state became an empire that was what i was interested in so i was focusing on the frontiers because that is the kind of space where i could find answers to my question then five years ago i moved to the metropolis of the empire itself the capital to begin to answer questions about the political economy of the empire how urbanism developed how the city-state itself came into existence. So that is a different kind of questions that requires me to work in the metropolitan area of the empire. Now, the Oyo empire lasted from about 1570 to 1840. That was the period I was interested in. But as we began our work, we started seeing evidence of pre-empire, Occupation pre empire period that goes all the way back to about 400 BC. That was not what I was interested in, but in the last three years, I've been sucked into understanding that early period because that early period is critical to understanding how the empire developed, how the city state of Oyo developed, and who are these people? see? So, and, and also it's fascinating because that, that that early period, that period of going back to 400 BC all the way to uh, 8th century AD, we don't really know much about that period in Yoruba history. So, I've devoted a lot of my energy in the last three years focusing on that period, that doesn't mean that I'm not interested in or your empire period. I will eventually get back to it. But for now, I'm I'm, I'm investing my energy studying that period because of the value of, of the importance of that period for broader Yoruba history. You see? So, you never know what you will come across. Just to to answer your question, uh, you never know what you would discover. You never know what you Will, you will encounter you can start with one question and start excavating there and then you end up with different sets of questions and you cannot run away from it as an archaeologist you have to pursue that line of discovery to its logical conclusion even when it takes you away from your original question it's okay <laughs> because when you are, if if you abandon that line of question, uh, it's like you are destroying the archaeological site. You know, it's like you are destroying it because you are not pursuing where the evidence is leading you, and you are basically trying to uh, 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 force feed your uh, what you are discovering to your own preconceived ideas, and that's that's to me that's bad scholarship. Uh, so. I'm, I'm always, uh, I always tell my students, I say, listen, we are going to go where the evidence leads us. That is my principle. Even when our initial question is suspended, <laughs> that's okay. Let's continue with what we are seeing here so that we can, we can, we can, because that information is unique. Other people may not come across that information for the next generation. So we have a duty as archaeological historians, that's what I call myself, as, as, as an archaeological historian, I have a duty to, to follow the lead. So it is the discovery that is leading me. I'm not the one leading the discovery. Okay? So that is, that is just the nature of, of, of our work, and that is the principle I bring to my work, that let the evidence lead us. We shouldn't, be cutting short what we are discovering and say, oh, I'm not interested in that, let me just do something else. No, that is like you are destroying archaeological sites because each site you as you, you excavate uh, uh, gives you very unique set of information, a uh, unique set of answers that maybe you, don't, you do not even have the question yet and you are getting the answer. Then you have to then come up with questions that will allow you to fully understand and appreciate the answers that you are getting.
0: It it makes a lot of sense too with how you use the term uh, community of practice. It's even though the Yoruba and the Yoruboid peoples of the archaic period were clearly very removed from even the Yoruba of the classical period, there were a lot of traditions that you could see were originating earlier on and then continued to be passed down, like the house system. Uh, Mm -hmm. which started with the uh, matrilocal uh, Mm
1: -hmm. family
0: system, and then that gradually blossomed into the mega houses, uh, Mm -hmm. which were just uh, larger confederations or communities that erupted. And even the the more so the spiritual thinking behind the Orisha and the connection Mm -hmm. to ancestors, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, there's a lot of overlap and understanding the earlier parts really helped me to understand what came later. What would you, I know we're running a bit late, so if you need to go, just let me know. But um, what would you say are the major traditions or practices that have carried on through Yoruba communities since the beginning? What do you think are the most fundamental aspects?
1: I think the most fundamental aspect is ile. Ile is, is, on one hand, a kinship network uh, whereby people who live in this uh, familial community, they see themselves as belonging to the same ancestors that they derived from the same ancestors. But the composition of Ile is not uh, based on blood kinship. It is an agglomeration of people, and they use fictive kinship and make it as if it is blood relationship. Now, people of that live that live in uh, Ile, that is, that live in, the, in the house, a house a house society. They they have many things in common, including landed property, including uh, uh, knowledge systems. It could be crafts knowledge. It could be spiritual knowledge. They have they subscribe to the same ancestor, even when they did not. All come together at the same time. So, Ile is a compositional. We should look at Ile as a compositional kinship group. But the kinship is not a product of blood relationship only. Some members are related by blood. Some are related by, some members are related by migration into into, into, into that household or house or that ILE. Some are related by patronage and clientele relationship. Some are related by marriage. So ILE is compositional. And there are many pathways to recruiting members into an ILE. But all of them, irrespective of their background, despite their diverse backgrounds, they subscribe, eventually subscribe, to the same spiritual identity. They subscribe to the same ancestral heritage. They even adopt... uh, the same, uh, the same religion, they 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 held landed properties in common as a way of safeguarding the interest of each member. So in Yoruba world, every child, every citizen has the right to land. You cannot be denied that. You must, uh, you know, you have access to land. That is the and and when anile when members of an ile become so large that there is fewer landed property for its members, then you begin to see people breaking off from that ile. Also, political titles also reside within the ile. So when the Yoruba then became, uh, uh, when they adopted a city-state model of governance, to so be a citizen of a city state, you must be a member of an elite. So your citizenship is not autonomous, which is a, which is contrary to you know what you have in the in uh, post enlightenment Western world, right? Uh being a citizen of a city state begins from you being a member of an elite. And without being a member of an ILE, you cannot be a citizen of a city-state in the, in the Yoruba political universe. So ILE is the is the primary building block of the Yoruba society. And that's what Levi Strauss calls the house society. People who define, who configures themselves based on what anthropologists sometimes call lineage, but which I don't really like that term, lineage, because lineage tends to suggest blood relationship. Instead, I prefer to use the term corporate group. It's a corporation, and it is a corporation. It's because it it is compositional. People can break out of it and people can be included in it there are many pathways to becoming a member of family so families unit I mean family units are the compositional units of an ile. so so this 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 ile is, is is something that has been there uh, I will argue uh, since the archaic period and then it becomes elaborated over time. To the point that it became mega, I call it mega house, and then eventually evolved into what we call the city-state. So this is the this is the and, and then another dimension of uh, Yoruba, at least that has been that has been there for the past one thousand year plus, is the institution of uh, kingship, divine kingship. uh what the Yoruba call Oba, that. That is an elaboration of, of a, a political leadership that is much older. So in my book, I talk about Oba as originally. It just means a leader. That's what it meant, you know, in especially in the formative periods. It just meant a leader. A leader who has authority to manage the affairs of his people. And you know, they, are mostly, they are mostly men. Of course, they are also female you know, as well. In the classical period, or actually in the late formative period, that political leadership became more professional. It becomes it becomes a, a, a more standardized. And by the time we enter uh, the classical period, it became a divine authority that those who are called over now assume, I mean, the people see them and they see themselves as divine beings. The difference between the Oba of the early formative period and the classical period is that in the early formative period, individuals who are called Oba They did not have, they were spiritual entity, but they did not have divine status. But when we get to the classical period, an oba now became a divine status. That is, it became the same as the deities. It became the representative of the deity on earth. But that, that 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 innovation in political authority also came out of a Yoruba uh, epistemology, or let me say a Yoruba ontology as well, which is that the ultimate, the Yoruba see themselves as when a child is born, up to today, in Yoruba religion, that child is, is a manifestation of the Supreme being on earth. A child is a manifestation of the supreme being. And the ultimate goal of that individual is to return to that state of divinity when they physically die. That is the that so the purpose of existence in this earthly form is to eventually become a divinity. Now in the in the towards the end of the l- late formative period, those leaders who are called Oba, they began to claim that they have attained divinity while they are still alive.
0: Just for, for context for listeners, the this is around seven hundred and fifty CE.
1: Yes. Between okay. seven hundred fifty CE to nine hundred CE. Some individuals who, be, who are the who are Who are the leaders of their community? They began to claim that they've attained that that they've attained immortality, where they are still alive. This was a revolutionary change in Yoruba political system, because an individual was not supposed to attain immortality when they are still alive. It's only when they physically die that they are supposed to attain. That immortality and you attain that imm- immortality only when your ancestors, sorry, only when your descendants create altars and worship you after death. That means that you are still existing in their life. That is when you attain immortality. But these some of these Oba began to claim that they've attained immortality while they are still alive. That is how divine kingship began among the Yoruba. And it is still there today that a king among the Yoruba and Oba is a divine being. He has died when he's still alive and resurrected and become a divine being. So only only royal personalities can claim divinity. Because by claiming divinity, they have become odisha. They've become deities.
0: Today, a lot of Yoruba are either Christian or Muslim as well. One thing that I read a lot was that religion and spiritual practices from pre-colonial times are very much still present in Yoruba society today, even though those other religions have been either adopted or depending on your perspective uh, imposed on the Yoruba, what role do like you, you say that there are still these uh, divine Kings that claim that divine virtue. Mm -hmm. To what extent is that something believed or practiced by Yoruba today? And to what extent is it simply a continuation of the culture and people choosing to, Embrace
1: the tradition? Uh, Yoruba religion has not died out. <laughs> Although people have embraced uh, Christianity, they've, they've uh, embraced Islam. I mean, most Yoruba today will claim they are Christian or Muslim. No doubt about that. However, uh, indigenous Yoruba religion is still alive. Um, those people that claim, claim to be Christian or Muslim, many of them continue to practice or worship those foreign religions as well. And there are many of them who are, who are still very faithful to Yoruba religion. In fact, I would argue that indigenous Yoruba religion is currently going through revival, you know, resuscitation, and renaissance, you know, people are beginning to turn those who have strayed away from it. Some of them are returning to it because uh, they see value in it. Or some people simply don't see any contradiction (laughs) in worshiping the the, the religion of their fathers and their mothers and also, uh, you know, going to church or going to mosque. They don't see contradiction in that. So uh, this and this this may speak to a particular dimension of African society, which is that these these cultures are non-dogmatic cultures. Yoruba religion, for example, is not a dogmatic religion. It doesn't say that my way or no way. It doesn't say that my path, my religion, Yoruba religion is the only way. No. That is that that kind of uh, dogma doesn't exist in Yoruba religion. Therefore it it is it, it makes it possible for Yoruba people when they are foreign religions to see it as, okay, why not? Why can't we bring it in? You know, Why can't we domesticate it? <laughs> why can't we domesticate Christianity? Why can't we domesticate Islam? So that was the way the first generation of the Yoruba, that's the way they encounter these religions. However, they soon realized that these are religions that are jealous of other religions. <laughs> they are religions that are dogmatic, That believe that this is the way and the only way. Well, by the time they discover that, uh, maybe it was already too late. (laughs) So, but people are uh, 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 Yoruba religion is not is not dogmatic and it's 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 an open open to experimentation. It's open to new ideas, Uh, but with these two foreign religions, uh claiming that they are the only way what has happened is that there's a backlash going on now in the sense that Yoruba religion now many practitioners are also now trying to mimic the puritanism of Islam the puritanism of Christianity by claiming that Yoruba religion must be worshipped in a particular ways, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and that it has to be faithful to Yoruba epistemology. You know, so, so Yoruba religion is still evolving in the world, uh, but we have to, I have to say that the ability of Yoruba religion to thrive in the 20th and 21st century uh, was because it was open and strategic, in opening in opening itself up to innovations or new things happening around it. Uh, whether, for example, when we go to the Ameri- to other parts of the Americas, whether in Cuba, in Brazil, in Haiti, in Trinidad, where Yoruba religion has thrived in New uh, in the U.S., Miami, New York, you see a people who have not shied away from experimenting, from adapting themselves to the new environment where they find themselves. Again, this this is a religion that's thrived under slavery in in, in, in a circumstance that one would not have expected it to thrive. So without strategic hopelessness, and 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 being and and syncretism, the religion would not have matured in the new world the way it has matured. And without strategic innovations under colonialism in Africa as well, the really the religion might not have survived the onslaught of colonialism. So we we have to be mindful of that that this is a religion, this is a culture that is open, has always opened itself to innovations, to experimentation, and that has that that, that has that has rejected dogma as the basis of its existence.
0: So with the many stories that are imbued with Yoruba religion and uh, oral tradition, you've had to discern what is myth, what is truth, what should be weighed into the actual historical narrative. Mm -hmm. For my Mm -hmm. final question, what stories from Yoruba tradition have stood out the most to you? Or what would you say is the most representative of Yoruba history, if you could give us any of those short stories.
1: <laughs> well, uh, let me first of all say that myth, contrary to the way we look at it in the, in everyday language use in the West or in the English-speaking world, myth, myth is not something that is false. Myth is, is, is a story. Is, is how a society became aware of itself. Most, I always tell my students that, tell me a great civilization that doesn't have mythology, is a, a mythology. You know, there's no. Because at the end of the day, this is where the spirit of a people resides. It's their myth. So I find these mythologies to be very important to study Yoruba history. Um, I can tell you that I've, I've, I've given a lot of weight to mythology, the same way I've given a lot of weight to material culture in my book. You cannot write Yoruba history without their mythologies. In fact, these this are the transcripts of their experience. Now, what is important though is to apply the rigor of historical analysis. The same way that I will take a, a, a written document, re, uh, possibly written in the 10th century or 17th century, the same way I will be rigorous in doing side source criticism. Criticize the author, I mean, figure out who, who is the author. What are the intentions of the author? What is the purpose for the creation of the text? I apply, so the same way I will use those same questions to analyze written documents, I use those same questions to analyze mythologies. And I look out for particular iconographies, particular references to the landscape, particular symbols, to actually figure out the time when those mythologies were composed. Yoruba myths give us a lot of, uh, I mean, Yoruba myths are historical documents. And uh, what I've done in this book is to show that we can actually identify the time period when each mythology was composed we can figure out who the composers were. And once you're able to do that, you can then therefore appreciate their historical value. So uh there are many of these stories uh, in the book. One of the popular ones that is still re- talked about today in Yoruba a popular uh, narrative is the story of Obatala and Urdua. Uh, these... These were, I mean, these are individuals in Yoruba religion in Yoruba pantheon. Uh, Obatala is regarded as the as the as the father figure of the pantheon, you know, and uh, Ududua is believed to be the first king of Ilefe. I locate this, the stories surrounding these two individuals towards the end of I me mean, the the the. Century, you know, when Elefe came into existence as an urban, as an urban, I mean, as a city state. So, the stories of the conflicts between these two individuals is that when the Supreme God was about to create the universe, or let me say, create the earth, (laughs) he sent a number of divinities from heaven to come and turn the watery surface of the earth to create land out of that surface, and uh, he gave he gave the leadership position to Obatala. He gave him a 5 toe chicken, a sack of a sack of sand, and a palm nut. That when they descend onto the, on the, onto the onto the earth, Obatala should spread that, just a small piece of sand on the on the surface of the ocean, and drop the, the five toed chicken on top of that sand. And anywhere the sand touches, as the as the chicken was spreading the sand, that that water surface will become solid. It will become land. Now. As this process was going on, uh, they were planting palm nuts and palm nut was growing, becoming a palm tree and they were able to make palm wine from the palm tree. Along the way, uh, Obatala began to indulge too much in drinking palm wine and then he became drunk and therefore unable to provide the leadership that was expected of him. In his in his moment of uh, being incapacitated by, you know, imbibing too much uh, alcohol, I mean, imbibing too much palm wine, Ududua took over the leadership role. And by the time Obatala woke up from his slumber, Ududua had completed the task. He had created the city of Ilefe, and he had become the king of Ilefe. So in that process, Obatala. Obatala lost political leadership, but he became sober and uh, and vowed that he would never drink palm wine again. And based on that, Odundo realized that he cannot govern this new city-state without his spiritual power that Obatala still had. So, the two of them were able to work out their differences. Ududua retained the political leadership and Obatala retained the spiritual, he lost political leadership, but he retained the spiritual leadership. And it is the collaboration between the two of them that made Ileife to prosper as a state. So this is one of the stories that I, I, I talk about in the, the book, but I was able to provide, the historical dimension of this mythology Uh, and and talk about the fact that uh, 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 this, this, this mythology was a way to explain a real historical event that happened between the faction of Obatala and the faction of Ududua. One may quibble about whether Ududua was a person or whether it was actually representing a particular historical moment. So, contrary to the impression that the conflict between these two individuals lasted over one generation, I argue in my book that the conflict actually lasted for more than one generation. It might have only lasted for three generations. As their followers, uh, you know, struggle to establish control and power over eleife that this conflict lasted beyond the lives of these two individuals. So this is one way in which... Uh, so now in doing that, I was bringing in archaeological evidence. I was using other uh, historical sources. I was using other um, uh, ritual archives to analyze that mythology. So this is one one uh, a very popular myth that you know we talk about all the time it it permeates every dimension of yoruba of yoruba uh, uh history yoruba religion yoruba folklore and i was able to place it uh, uh within a historical moment so that is uh, an example of 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 a myth
0: well, thank you thank you so much I feel like that's a brilliant way to end it. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone loves mythology, especially <laughs> when it has real consequences. Yes. Uh, the uh, One of the cooler archaeological sites you mentioned was the inner wall around the bull, which mm-hmm. uh, this story takes place in. And uh, it's it's always interesting to hear the myth first and then realize, oh, there's actual leftover uh, artifacts (laughs) and evidence of it actually happening yes so thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it i think that uh not just yoruba history but all of west african history is something that people around the world are really interested in especially because it's um it picks at the curiosity because it's so little understood um, Uh, i want to give a shout out before we go really quick to deborah cohen as well for uh connecting us for this conversation. And uh, my my good friend and former roommate, FA Osajo Barre, is Edo, and he told oh. me he would get mad at me if I did not ask you when was the last time that you had suya?
1: <laughs> Anytime I go to Nigeria I have I have suya. Good, good. But, I, but I also understand that there's good suya in Maryland. You know, so I have to, in Baltimore, so I, 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 and they can deliver. So I've not tried that, but, uh, but uh, Suya is my regular staple when I go to Nigeria. And I, and that was in, back in August, I was in Nigeria. So I asked Suya.
0: <laughs> I don't know when I'll be able to get to Nigeria, but I'll definitely get it when I go to Baltimore.
1: Please do. Please do. And then we should invite you to Nigeria. Anytime you are ready, let me know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> gladly, gladly.
1: We go there almost every year. Okay.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm in great. All great. right, thank you.
1: My pleasure, okay?